Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Dr. Scott Yenner. Dr. Yenner is a political science professor at Boise State University and a Washington Fellow at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. He is most recently the author of The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Dr. Yenner, welcome back to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thanks for having me back, Josh. Uh, I so enjoyed our uh, our last conversation. I, I was uh, was also really happy that you were up for for this again. Before we get into uh, the the report that we're talking about today, I'd love it if you could uh, tell us a bit about the Claremont Institute and your work with them as a as a Washington fellow. Uh, what what all what all's involved in that? Well, Claremont has always been a think tank on the West Coast, and a few years ago we established a think tank on the East Coast in DC uh, called the Center for the American Way of Life. And the purpose of the Center for the American Way of Life is to, you know, to protect uh, the great and unique things about America, the regime of natural rights and equality of, uh, before the law uh, against the threats that exist today uh, coming primarily from identity politics mm. and such. So my portfolio there has been to uh, show the ways in which our education system has been threatened um, by the identity politics ideologies, especially feminism, critical race theory, uh, queer theory and things. And I also have worked uh, on the in the feminism lane uh, to show the ways in which feminism itself has undermined the American way of life. Um, that is based on the assumption that uh, you're not going to get a great America without a great set of families. Uh, there's no great nations without great families. And feminism itself is a threat, says it is a threat and is a threat to such great families. So uh, it's been part of my portfolio to, uh, to show how that's the case and how feminism erodes the American way of life. So basically, my portfolio has been about universities and feminism and how that uh, those two ideologies or those two places pose specific dangers to the American way of life. And uh, Claremont, uh, Claremont Center for the American way of life is really trying to be very practical about how the, uh, the ide identity politics ideology um, you know, has, has threatened uh, America through public policy and you know, through shaping the culture. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I, I wasn't aware that of the uh, Claremont Institute's East Coast presence. I, I occasionally take a look through the Claremont Review of Books, and uh, I know Hillsdale College has a really strong relationship with Claremont since uh, Dr. Arn came to Hillsdale from Claremont, if I remember that correctly. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know they had that, that D.C. presence. That's really exciting. Uh, and those those areas, are they, they seem simultaneously to be really pernicious, and like the, the progressive left has worked its way into all these different facets of, of American life, but that seemingly have gone unopposed. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's, that's something you're trying to raise awareness of and, and are writing towards, uh, raising more awareness about kind of those problems and that there are strong intellectual voices on, on the conservative right that are trying to really conserve this particularly American way of living. Yeah, the, you know, conservatives have to start taking stock of our failures and um, it brings us no joy to do that, but we have to start figuring out, well, why what we have done in the past has failed to, say, move the needle on higher ed. 
the percentage of professors uh, who are left left leaning in higher ed, you know, goes up every year as old people retire and as new newbies enter into the uh, profession, into the academy. Um, free speech is what conservatives have emphasized over the last, you know, 20 years, 30 years uh, in cr criticizing the higher ed industry. Like that hasn't gotten the job done. And uh, conservatives have opposed uh, affirmative action or racial preferences. That hasn't gotten the job done. The university system have continued to drift to the left and have corroded the foundation for an appreciation for Western civilization, for Christendom. And uh, so something has to be done. And uh, so first we have to take stock in what we've done and give an account of why it has failed. And then by figure out where we are. And uh, that's one of the things we're hoping to do and I think have done. Um, and uh, much the same thing is true of feminism. Uh, we joke that conservatives sometimes say, well, conservatives are the real feminists. And uh, it's like, no, we're the real opponents of feminism. And uh, we have to probably isolate ourselves from the, not just from the most pernicious excesses of feminism, mm -hmm. but also from its very foundations uh, in order to, um, in order to defend the American way of life. So that's, uh, you know, I think a needful thing and uh, something that we're trying to undertake. Wow. Very, very good work for sure. I think last time we talked, I was uh, uh, still in much earlier stages in the dissertation process. I've since finished two chapters. And uh, the first chapter I used your book, The uh, Recovery of Family Life, and particularly kind of the way you traced uh, feminism. What I found most helpful in there was really, I think, I think there's a, you point out a link there that I don't think very many people pay too much attention to. Uh, you focus specifically on the way that feminism decouples the idea of gender from the body and that then this whole, uh, and it's sort of uh, the way you tell the story, feminism is trying to really eradicate actual women, which I found was just a very helpful way of thinking about it. Cause there's, there's a bit of a rhetorical shift that, uh, takes place in my mind where like, I don't want to be opposed to feminism uh, if that means I'm trying to tell all women everywhere they have to be oppressed. Uh, there's sort of, uh, feminism sort of got the rhetorical high ground by using the language of liberation early, but very quickly pulling this sort of bait and switch where that liberation is actually trading the, the reality of what it means to be a woman for basically uh, being an inferior version of a man and trying to do very manly activities in a less good way and then being societally praised for that. Uh, I thought you did a very good job kind of picking that apart and highlighting uh, here exactly is why feminism as it's currently, as, as it's evolved over the past, say, 80 years, uh, is really against actual women. Uh, and I, I really liked your, I, I'm not sold on the <clears throat> the term, but uh, I loved your idea of sort of a, a we need a, an ideological sense of womanism that is encouraging women to be the most thoroughly themselves they possibly can be, which I thought was just a very helpful way to think about, think about feminism and where, where are we today in terms of uh, social and legal equality is here. Uh, but there, I keep running into women who are really, really unhappy with the way that society has kind of pushed them into the workforce, into uh, leadership roles and that, but, and, and it all comes with a cost. And it's of course the cost of hearth and home uh, and children typically. Uh, and so that, that, yeah, I, I just, I really appreciate the work that you do in that area. I think it's very, very helpful. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 
my shtick on that is that uh, is that feminism is one of the last stages of modern attacks on nature, att attempts mm -hmm. to conquer nature. And the body is one of the last obstacles. And uh, so feminism really defines a woman against her body. So the new idea of what is going to be honored will not be traced to what a woman's body can do, that is produce and nurture children, but rather like something else, creative work of her own, as Betty Friedan calls it. Mm. And, um, and yeah, I think that's, you know, it's a new ethic. Uh, feminists uh, really try to trick us, I think, in saying that uh, this is about giving women more choices. No, it's about narrowing the choices <laughs> that women um, uh, will dedicate themselves to. Uh, I wrote recently uh, that there seem to be, at least the stats that I've seen, suggest that there are less than 400 nuns under the age of 40 in the United States. People are free to become nuns, but they don't choose it. And uh, we might want to consider why that might be. Like there's a predominant ethic that points people away from that. And the same thing, though on a larger scale, is true of motherhood. Uh, people have fewer you know, people are free to have as many children as they want. They're free to be mothers, but they choose it less. That's because we have a particular ethic that kind of points people away from uh, making that particular choice. So um, seeing feminism as an ethic, as something that honors one way of life and dishonors other ways of life, I think is, you know, like one of the things that I want to get through um, in my work on feminism. So. Excellent. Well, listeners, uh, I, I promise we're not going to take all of our time today to rehash these themes. But if you're curious for more of these, do go back and check out uh, the first episode in season three, uh, where Dr. Yenner spent a lot more time on these ideas in discussing his book, The Recovery of Family Life. Uh, I will just point out, uh, uh, currently, as of our recording today, uh, that is the most popular episode in season three. Uh, we've had 275 downloads on Podbean and 114 views on YouTube. Which I know, in the grand scheme of things, is are very small numbers, but for an up and coming podcast, those are uh, those are they're they're great. So I'm I'm really excited that uh, your your episode's been getting some good play. Well, <clears throat> Dr. Yenner, I reached out uh, in part because I I saw uh, I printed it out. I don't have a good screen share with this, so I printed up held up my PDF copy. Uh, I printed out your recent report, uh, "Grooming Future Revolutionaries: Woke Indoctrination at K-12." Uh, schools on America's military bases, which I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, it seems to kind of sit there with a couple other uh, reports uh, three or four years ago. Uh, there was a Manhattan Institute report about uh, woke ideology in Wake County public schools. Wake County is, I think, the fourth largest public school district, in, at least on the eastern seaboard, if not in the country. We're one of the bigger ones. Uh, so that, that report got some press. Uh, Christopher Rufo has made sort of a beat out of uh, breaking news about woke indoctrination at various companies, uh, Disney being the biggest one in the last couple of years. Um, but so I'm really kind of curious what you can tell us about what's going on, uh, particularly what was the problem that you identified here? And why is it so concerning that this is happening at uh, K-12 schools on America's military bases? Why is that a unique group of, of schools that's worth studying? Well, yeah, there's a lot in that question. So first of all, the uh, the report is co-authored with uh, with my boss at Claremont Institute, uh, who's the president, Ryan Williams, and um, and what we got was a series of about fifty 
training videos. So, uh, so the, if we back up, like, let's talk about the schools we're talking about. Uh, the schools we're talking about are the schools on military bases. So many members of the military have families. They take them with them when they are overseas, they're stationed overseas. So there'll be, um, there'll be schools of varying sizes that are affiliated with or uh, one military base or several, depending on if there's many in the area. And, uh, and you know, there's about seven, 70,000 people, 70,000 students in this particular system. And uh, I can't even remember how many uh, schools there are, but there are hundreds of schools. And the videos that we got a hold of were videos of how the teachers on the military base schools were being trained. So this was military base school teachers training other military base school teachers. And, uh, and the predominance of what we call in other contexts, critical social justice um, theories or practices uh, was really all over the training videos. And so we think it's significant uh, for a couple reasons. One is because the particular system that we're talking about here um, on the military bases is directly supervised by, we'll say, the political appointees in the Department of Defense. Mm. So it is like come, it comes down as an order to do this uh, from the political appointees in the Department of Defense. So it shows what our ruling class considers to be an important element or, you know, like the important thrust of a modern education. And, uh, and secondly, and we didn't talk about this directly in the report, but it's something to know, is that the military-based schools are actually like by objective measures, like not bad. Um, they're the second best school system in the country behind Massachusetts. And um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what kind of effects the the particular program that is being implemented in the uh, in the military-based schools, you know, has on their performance. So we can create a kind of baseline for that. But yeah, so so how are the educators being educated? That's what um, what these training videos reveal, and uh, and you know. It, and it reveals what is valued by the, you know, the political class, those who are running the Department of Defense. Oh, man, that's, that's I'm thinking there's also um, I, I know this is probably an unmeasurable factor, uh, but I assume there is some clear correlation relationship between uh, children of military officers who then go into the military themselves and so there's got to be some future concern about the way we educate the children of current military personnel is also shaping who is probably going to be part of leading the military in 20, 30 or 40 years. Is that a is that also in play? Totally. I mean, I think it might even you might even take a step back um, and think about the recruiting crisis that seems to exist in the military. I think they're 50 percent away from actually hitting their numbers this year. It's about the third or fourth year in a row that they have not got anywhere near their recruitment numbers. And I'm not going to say the lion's share, but there is some significant share of that, um, which is traceable to the fact that the children of current members of the military are enlisting at, at like 
diminished numbers. Hmm. And, uh, and if you teach them that the country is inherently racist, and if you undermine patriotic education and teach the kids that they're citizens of the world, if you try to make them into left-wing activists instead of into, like, like, I'll just say American patriots again, uh, it's no wonder that they like, will enlist at smaller numbers. And um, so I think that this is going to be part of the ongoing uh, recruitment crisis that the military already suffers. I mean, it's never a good time to be in the military during peacetime. You know, the peacetime military is like not usually on its, the top of its game. Mm. Uh, it's not necessarily a total shocker that there's recruitment problems during a time of sustained peace. Um, however, uh, you know, once the military comes to represent, I don't know, the anti-American idea, sure. then uh, you're less likely to have people who love the country enter into the in, enter into the military. And uh, so, yeah, I do think that there is a long-term problem, crisis, uh, question whether or not people will rise to the occasion if the military kind of, we'll say, takes the other side. Um, uh, over the course of time. <laughs> I'm just saying this is reminding me of a uh, theme that one of my favorite history professors traced in several of his courses. Uh, he was also the uh, military history guy at and Hillsdale's history department. And he at least made a, uh, he noted a pattern. He, he was very careful to say like, you can't really count on this pattern. It may just be in these places. Uh, but it was the case across 19th and into 20th century Europe that the military tended to be more conservative than the typical population, and particularly the political class. Uh, we're looking particularly in Spain and France, and uh, to some extent in England as well. Uh, so for Spain, at least, you have this 19th century Spain as this running series of political crises, and the military was sort of a stable base of uh, traditional Spain uh, in the midst of constant turmoil and turnover in their government. Uh, it just seems very interesting to me that that uh, I've heard more in the last two years about uh, woke issues in the military uh, than I remember in the previous 32. Uh, now that is, is that a, uh, is that, is that a, is that an actual problem we have across our military or are these just, are these issues that have been there that are now sort of rising to the, to the, to the surface of national conversation? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if let's differentiate two things. Uh, let's differentiate the academies, the military academies, West Point, Annapolis, Colorado Springs. Is that where the Air Force is, right? And, um, and uh, typical training on the one hand, and then the military-based schools on the other hand. Um, I think we document this a little bit in the report, but, uh, you know, the issues of the, the academies going woke have been there probably for six, eight, depending on how you measure it, you know, like significantly over the last half a decade. And, um, and it's probably the case that the entering class of 2016, so they would be called the, the class of 2019 um, at like the Air Force, like they're the last ones that were overseen by other students as opposed to the administration so that you know the initiations and all this stuff that might exist now you can go back to read uh 
you know, speeches by, let's say, Jim Webb, who was an old secretary of uh, the Navy uh, in the early 1980s. And he says that the academies were already kind of gone in, at that point because of the admission of women into the, uh, into the academies. But uh, I think the acceleration of this in the last five years is uh, obvious to all and very well documented. So, you know, the anti-whiteness training or the white privilege training, the CRT stuff, um, like that's become, hit the, hit the, the gas pedal has been hit on that in the last five years. Um, the military-based schools, you know, the, the strategic plan for that really only accelerated the CRT stuff in about 2020. And, uh, and, and we're now seeing the beginnings of the fruit of that. It's one of the last vestiges within the military that was still immune from, like, we'll just say the woke ideology. Uh, now they're coming for the kids, is what I'm saying, um, as opposed to the uh, plebes. And uh, so that, you know, it, it's an issue. Uh, it has been an issue for, as I say, half a decade, and now the chickens are coming home to roost in the K through 12 system uh, in the last couple of years. Well, let's get into some specifics uh, then. Uh, there were two phrases that you mentioned uh, that I'd love it if you could uh, help us with some specific examples, because they the phrases sound positive. I've I've seen these used in educational circles, and uh, they sort of, in one sense, they can kind of these can be present and sort of fade into the background, uh, but you identified these as places where there's sort of an Orwellian doublespeak going on. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of uh, social and emotional learning. And then uh, the other phrase is trauma-informed practices. Uh, could you walk us through sort of both halves of that? What, what, what's, what's sort of the public rhetoric around those phrases, but then also uh, what did your report find is actually happening with those, those ideas in the classroom? Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's a big question. Um, so like <laughs> so let me let, I want to zoom out and then I'll try to come back in a little bit. Um, so, you know, the whole aim of we'll call it the woke movement, um, both on race and on gender, um, is to look at the current society and say those structures are oppressive. They're pigeonholing people into like racial roles or heterosexual roles, or they're encouraging women to be mothers. The, the system as it currently exists is oppressive. And there's a promise though, that at the end of the day, we can liberate people from these oppressive structures and have this kind of new humanity on the other end. And you like, this, this exists everywhere. This critique of American society exists everywhere. So it affects the cops. Our drug laws are forms of racial oppression, they say. And therefore, we need to like minimize their effect on people of color. And so we need bail reform and we need to let we need to have shorter prison sentences. We just need to let people out of prison. And this is the movement of liberation. Uh, we need Soros prosecutors to oversee their non-prosecutions. And, and we're seeing this on higher ed. Um, the oppressive structure of the old curriculum still exists. Blacks do worse in school. So we need to like change our admission standards or we need to have no standards. And uh, that way we're going to have, we're going to liberate people from it. Now, 
the general critique when it comes to race is called critical race theory. But like no one really talks about critical race theory with the cops. They say abolish the police. No one really talks about critical race theory when it comes to higher ed. They say diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And in K through 12, critical race theory kind of makes its way into um, the curriculum, into the daily practices of schools, not coming under the name critical race theory, not calling itself gender theory, but instead it calls itself transformative social and emotional learning, or it calls itself restorative justice or it embraces trauma-induced practices, uh, you know, so that, that this large theory comes under different words, under different covers in all of these different facets of American life. And so when we're dealing with critical race theory or gender theory or queer theory in uh, K through 12, it comes in the form of social and emotional learning. And or it comes in the form of trauma induced practices, but it's always doing the same thing. It's always the current structure is bad, but there's this promise of liberation from the current structure if we do like this policy. So, transform so social and emotional learning, like it sounds like it's shaping habits so that students will be in a better position to succeed mm -hmm. and exercise self-control. And that's actually the first iteration of social and emotional learning. But it always is the leading edge toward this other thing called transformative social and emotional learning, which is to kind of manipulate the emotions of students so that they recognize, in cases of white students, their own privilege, they feel guilty about it, and they're willing to like let BIPOCs, um, black indigenous people of color, you know, lead the conversation or determine um, the, uh, you know, the, the nature of the curriculum. Uh, it's designed to get people to question their own identities, their sexual identities. And, uh, and therefore, to be open to, uh, to liberating the iron cage of gender, people from the iron cage of gender, so that they, um, uh, you know, will, will be open to queer theories and uh, transgenderism. So, like, one thing that teachers are encouraged to do is to always use their own pronouns. So, uh, one of the videos says, look, I mean ask students what pronouns they would like to be identified as. And in the beginning, they're just gonna like say, what are you talking about? But like, we want them to learn to question the pronouns that are associated with their own identity. So you do that by calling into question, like, well, I, would you like to be called by those pronouns again today? Ask them every day. And eventually they'll say, oh, this is actually a questionable thing. And, and once they're open to questioning it, then encourage them to keep questioning it. This is liberating them from the oppressive structures through like various techniques that are part of social and transformative social and emotional learning. Um, uh, the same thing uh, happens with things like trauma-induced um, practices. Um, what that is, is you start class off with a kind of arresting tale um, that gets people to see the oppressive structures that they otherwise wouldn't see. 
So you tell them, say, um, the other day I was walking on an escalator. I'm just going to borrow this from uh, from uh, a prominent black scholar. Um, I was walking on an escalator, and uh, and a lady saw me. I'm a I'm a black man, and uh, she put her purse from one side of her body to the other side of the body, so that she. Uh, you know, was protecting it from the possibility that I might be a thief. And, uh, and then, you know, how does that make you, how would that make you feel if someone did that in front of you? So we, I mean, it, the, the trauma can usually be more traumatic. I'm just making this up as I'm going along here, but I'm just giving you an example. Um, you know, it, it's, it's designed story. to get people to identify the oppressive structure and to, like question the way they're living their lives so that they can embrace the anti-racist ideology uh, that would tear down such discriminatory, apparently discriminatory things. This all sounds like a giant time-consuming set of exercises. I mean, I just, I know it has been a, in, in a, um, maybe less the philosophy side, but more the very practical side. Whenever I get a group of teachers together, one of the first things they're concerned with is time in seat. And one of the most measured facets of, of, of education is the amount of time students spend on a subject. Surprise, surprise, directly correlates to progress in that subject. So it's just one of the things that teachers are always really worried about. Uh, if if, if uh, every Thursday afternoon, the last period of the day is down, gets 20 minutes less of time, that teacher is usually ready to go in and complain to the principal. Don't be surprised when my test scores are a little bit lower because I've lost and they'll usually count up the minutes. But this sounds like all of these things would take time that are not in the standards. If I'm teaching history, there's nothing in my standards that says I should stop. Oh, oh but there are things in the standards. Oh, do like, tell, this is the new standard. So, uh, I mean... You know, I'm sure you've no noted uh, that test scores on reading and math and science and these other things have been going down around the country. And, well, part of the reason for that might be that this is actually like the thing that's being emphasized in curricula as opposed to the actual mastery of material. So, um, yeah, I mean, it does. It is a time suck from the perspective of teaching uh, traditional uh you know, school subjects. But if this is now the goal of education, then it's not a time suck. It's actually the proper way of, uh, you know, allocating your time. There's one story that one, uh, one teacher uh, told, you know, during one of the, uh, one of the training sessions that we had about trying to get the, the school had a homecoming court and it had a king and a queen. And over the course of weeks, she tried to get students to, uh, like, that's too, that's too much of an iron cage. What about gay students? Why can't it, why don't we just call it a court instead of a king and a queen? And, like, she just tried to make the argument, and she allowed the students to vote, and she just tried to persuade them that this was the right way to go. And the students ended up voting to keep the king and the queen and, you know, she's disappointed that she hadn't made enough progress uh, with them, you know, like she needs to really redouble her efforts over the course of the next year in order to get rid of the whole idea of the homecoming court. 
But I mean, this, this, I'm just using this to illustrate the point that like, this is the point. This is not an accident or a sideshow. This is the point of education today. And uh, so it's no wonder, like no one cares that the test scores are going down. That's, that's not a bug. It's a feature. Oh my. Well, I wonder if you can give us some more examples of, uh, I, I jotted some phrases down that, uh, um, uh, you've given us some of these already, I think, but, uh, um, these at least were four problem areas that seemed really significant that your report identified. Um, you talked about cutting edge left-wing propaganda techniques, uh, radical gender ideology. Uh, I noted the, uh, you mentioned a teacher, the, Part of this training included uh, teaching people how to use the the gingerbread uh, illustration uh, in the classroom, uh, and then the phrase "white shaming" and anti-racism. Um, but that's, I've got one other one that I'll come back to after after that. But any any thoughts or particular examples you want to share about those those three areas? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've talked about some of it already. I mean, just you you have to recognize that what teachers are being taught to do. In this, in this particular setting, is to uh, in, encourage students to recognize their own white privilege or the ways in which the world is, you know, unjustly organized around the idea that there are men and women, um, and uh, and the way in which the world secretly favors, I'll say, you know, man-woman relations over man-man or woman-woman relations. And, uh, and then like to think that that's bad, like it's bad that the world uh, does all that stuff. So, uh, you know, and there's, you know, the, there's books, um, there's teaching techniques, there's uh, activities in the class, all of which can be designed to expose those particular secret structures of oppression uh, in the world. One of them that you just mentioned is this book, The Gender Bread Man. Now, like, don't ask me to recount the plot of this thing, uh, but it's a chart that tries to show that, uh, that one's gender identity is, um, is plotted along four factors. Uh, like, uh, how do you like, uh, I'm, I, I can't remember all the four factors, um, uh, about this because it's been a while since I've read the book um, and I wish I had the report open so I could just quickly turn to it. But um, so say like who you're sexually attracted to. Um, what what kind of clothes do you like to wear? Um, what do you feel inside about yourself? So that all of these things are questionable and then you put yourself on a spectrum and at the end of the day, you can find out like which one of the particular genders are you. But this is all pitched to six-year-olds. Like uh, it's it's based on uh, this this vision of the gingerbread man, but it's that it's the genderbread man. And so we're, you're asking little little kids uh, like, do you like to sew? Oh, maybe you think you're a girl. And uh, we can identify you on various places, uh, even though I don't think girls even so anymore, but that's another matter. And uh, that's our feminism uh, discussion. And uh, so we can plot where your gender is. And this becomes like something that is done in the classroom. Another thing, maybe the most pernicious thing that is done in the whole training 
is to attempt to um, to imagine that trust exists only between teachers and students so that students begin to call into question and keep secrets from their parents. Like this is something they're encouraged to do. Like, do you ever feel like you have a crush on someone? Do you ever feel like your identity is not what you're being told it is at home? And, you know, and to try to sow skepticism into the relation between parents and children and to build trust between the supposedly objective and just sitting there listening teachers um, and the kid. And, uh, and, you know, like the promise to keep things from parents about one's gender identity, um, like all of that uh, is a big deal. And, uh, and it's so, it's, once again, it's not just an accident. Uh, it's, it's the view that kids really don't, will say, belong to their parents or the pr parents aren't primarily responsible for the kids, but rather the state and its agents are primarily responsible for the kids. And that the state's job is to call into question these given aspects of their identity. Mm -hmm. And the teacher is the lead, the tip of the spear when it comes to doing that. And uh, there's lots of techniques for accomplishing this. And uh, the video videos that we put forward you know, show some of those. It, it's, I think it's really interesting and it's kind of terrifying at the exact same time. Because everything you're describing is sort of, I, I can hear teachers who lean left or centrist uh, framing this in terms of like critical thinking. And yet when you put it in terms of like, these are concepts being presented to a six-year-old, the critical thinking argument, I think sort of evaporates. Because uh, what we're dealing with are things that these are fixed realities. These are fixed assumed points that students need to be able to count on so that they can learn to interact with each other in a just way. And yet by calling all those into question and kind of pairing that with a trusted authority figure, the teacher who, if the teacher has done his or her job correctly, there's a strong relationship there. What's also terrifying, and I, I assume ties into your slightly provocative title about grooming future revolutionaries. I'm assuming that was not an accidental verb in your, in your title or the, the title of uh, your report with uh, Ryan Williams. Um, there's a lot of what you just mentioned that every teacher in America has to go through that we're not allowed to ask about because those are the marks of being a sexual predator. <laughs> uh, if I, as a uh, mid thirties male ask a student about like attraction or make too many comments about clothing or like, those are literally red flags that another teacher should report me to administration about like having an unhealthy interest in, in a child. And yet these are the very things that teachers are then being coached on. Uh, one of the pieces I just wanted to make sure we do get in, uh, just in case any of our audience is kind of unaware of the role these sorts of trainings play. Um, and I'm speaking from the private school world that I assume is only more true in the public school world because they have licensure requirements and CEUs and all that. Um, uh, teaching is a uh, training heavy profession. If you just look at it from the outside and you think, oh my goodness, you can you can't throw a rock and not hit an educational consultant somewhere in America. But in the actual work of the school year, uh, it's very rare to have moments where teachers are out of the classroom and out of grading and are actually given training. Uh, in a private school setting, we tend to have one, maybe two of those a year. And those kind of moments are crucial for just equipping teachers with tools, with vision, with alignment kind of concerns. 
uh, in a public school setting where your teachers have to meet licensure requirements, uh, they have to seek out professional development or go through their institutional professional development to a certain amount each year. Those kind of things then become the background that teachers draw on when they're trying to think through, have I done my job this year? And I'm imagining not sort of the uh, closet revolutionary teacher. I'm imagining the newly hired teacher who went through a standard teacher, teacher training program and has the best of intentions and wants to move up the ladder. And that teacher's first question is, have I done what I'm supposed to do in my job? And professional development moments like the trainings that we're talking about, those are what shape teachers' visions of what, whether or not they've done their job. So when these kind of trainings that presumably a once or twice a year kind of all teacher gathering to know this is really what we're emphasizing this year, make sure you hit pronouns, make sure you hit structural oppression narratives, make sure this happens, that all kind of gets filed away and it gets added to the list, the checklists that determine salaries, <laughs> uh, advancement, department chair kind of things. Uh, that, that really that, that administrators are then looking for to evaluate whether teachers are doing or not. So I say all that to say, just to emphasize for our audience, that this really does matter. Like th This really is part of what uh, is in the warp and weft of mainstream education uh, today. Any other comments? Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is it's also true that the, the teachers who conduct the seminars and the, the training are being honored with the uh, place of saying this is an authoritative voice for what it means to be a teacher. Yep. And so that not only does it uh, show the route toward raises, but also public honor, which I think is very crucial uh, in determining the nature of these institutions. So that, uh, that these teachers are, as they might say, being platformed over other teachers um, shows what what is valued. And, uh, and if you want to be valued as a member of this particular teaching profession, this is what you want to look like. So yeah, I, I, I like what you said there. I think it's true. Um, and, uh, and we also have an addition to that, the, the issue of honor. Um, I think that's, that's, that's crucial. Um, well, Dr. Yenner, let's, uh, let's shift towards maybe a, a, a little bit more of a, a, a positive approach. Um, I noticed as we got towards the end of the report, you started contrasting everything we've been discussing about kind of this, this focus or this, this addition uh, with the, uh, what you called key American notions like colorblindness, meritocracy, and Republican self-government. Could you walk us through what these key notions are and why you think they belong at the core of American education, particularly for children of military personnel? Yeah, I mean, we could take a couple of these. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, you know, the the ideologues who lead these trainings and you know are standing on the backs of other people who have put forward fundamental critiques of the American way, and uh, and they criticize notions like uh, colorblindness, um, meritocracy. And uh, Republican self-government, those are the three that I mentioned there. There are others that fall on the list. Um, and they, they criticize it because those notions actually produce inequalities. So that colorblind policies, say like giving the SAT, 
seems like a very colorblind thing, and uh, and we've been very worried about the cultural, you know, narrative that might inform the uh, SAT or ACT for years. Um, but it's still necessarily, or I shouldn't say necessarily, but it still has, over the course of time, produced unequal outcomes. So while it appears that uh, the SAT is colorblind, um, blacks do worse, Asians do better, and whites are in the middle and uh, closer to Asians and blacks, but their blacks are about a standard deviation below whites. So there must be something wrong with the standard. And, uh, and the, same, the same thing is true about meritocracy. Um, you know, like for whatever reason, uh, you look at physicists in the United States, there are a lot of Asians. They're like out of proportion in their population. Uh, so white, whites less so, but also true. And there are very few black physicists. I mean, who knows why that's the case, but it is. And, um, and so that must mean that there's something secretly built into the notion of being a physicist that detracts from merit, like this idea of merit is what we use to justify this inequality. But it's really just a system of racism. And like the only alternative to this <laughs> is to like embrace the idea that our practices are colorblind and we have the stomach for the inequalities. Um, that we think the inequalities that are produced are like the result of genuine differences for traceable to whatever. But nevertheless, um, these, these institutions that we have, we think are very valuable. Mm -hmm. And uh, like we think it's like people who commit violence in school should be suspended, regardless of the racial disparity that might come about from suspending people for committing violence against other students. You can't have a learning environment without with violence. And uh, but you know, like that's going to be looked at as like apparently colorblind, but secretly uh, 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 a, an institution of racial subordination. So, you know, we have to like recognize what we are defending. We are defending standards that are central to a civilized country. No civilized country can exist without such standards. And these standards are in themselves good. Mm. And, uh, and they're persistent. They've coexisted with slavery and Jim Crow, but they aren't defined by slavery and Jim Crow. And uh, the attempt to erode such standards and replace them, frankly, with different standards um, that imply the inequality of the law um, is, is just going to like undermine the fabric of any civilization. And we're kind of seeing that in some of our inner cities now where different standards for whites and blacks are finding their way into law, where we're trying to if not abolish or defund the police, we're trying to decrease their effect on the world. Um, and, uh, and so I think there's no way around the idea that civilization requires standards and the standards include the rule of law and the recognition of inequalities where they exist and serve the public. And that these institutions are hostile to those ideas 
in their nature. So we have to like be defending those standards. That's a great, that's a great uh, kind of clear way of describing it. I only add that uh, uh, you mentioned the SAT that took me back to a uh, debate resolution. My team had a couple years ago where we were debating about whether or not the SAT or colleges should go test optional. This was before COVID before colleges actually all pretty uniformly went test optional. Mm-hmm. And one of the, um, one of the biggest arguments I tried to convince my students to run on NEG uh, was that the actual, that actually, colorblindness and meritocracy lead to the most just system and that we will never have a perfectly just system in this world, but actually having a fair test that if you can perform to a certain level on this test, you get access to these kinds of social goods and having that test be fairly accessible to everybody and there being free study aids out the wazoo uh, in every public library in America and then on the internet everywhere. All of that leads ultimately to uh, all kinds of actual success stories where people who, uh, if you just look at their backgrounds and their, their, their ethnic stories, you would never expect them to get into big name colleges. And yet, because they put the work in, they achieve a certain score and they then have access to these. And that's actually far more just than abolishing the standard, which all of a sudden removes one, even though it's pretty flawed, one quantitative metric for college admissions, thus creating a greater space for uh, wealthy students to be able to tell stories about being in fencing club or the time they studied abroad, uh, that an inner city kid from Detroit is just never going to be able to tell those stories. But now his test score doesn't really matter nearly as much. And so I think there's, it's a, it's very interesting to me that we've, we seem to have a societal problem of recognizing that inequalities and hierarchy are simply part of reality. And we will never have a pure equality. Uh, And egalitarianism actually only hides uh, a a false kind of hierarchy uh, in its midst and requires some other form of injustice. In this case, uh, I think what we tend to functionally get is the sort of positive racism or affirmative action kind of moves that currently have UNC Chapel Hill and uh, Yale University in pretty hot water in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, that, that's, that's a case I'm looking forward to seeing resolved, uh, hopefully in the coming months. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's good. Uh, well, as we uh, kind of wrap up today, um, I, I want to kind of go to your closing. Uh, you close your, the report closes with a call to action. Um, what could we do nationwide or on local levels uh, to really protect the education of America's military children? And to the extent that these same problems exist in mainstream public education, uh, what could we do that would protect the education of America's youth? Well, I mean, the the judgment that people have to make is, are the institutions of K-12 education salvageable? Um, and, uh, and I think that that's a great divide. Um, and, uh, my own view is that they, it, it's, we're, we're down the road, uh, to the point where they're not salvageable. The teacher preparation means the, the schools of education, the accreditation organizations, the professional organizations and teachers unions, the curriculum developers uh, for America's public schools are all on the same page. 
and uh, and therefore the best policy is to opt out and destroy. <laughs> and uh, and what I mean by destroy there is our our reigning educational establishment uh, is like is beyond being repaired and regulated uh, to serve the public good. So you know we need an education establishment, and but our reigning ones are corrupt and you know and they've been around for a long time they've been around for a hundred years um the teachers unions have existed for at least that long uh it's not a shock that they no longer really care about serving the public um and uh so you know it just it's time to find ways to dishonor disrupt and uh, defund the uh reigning education establishment and uh, and so you know on on military schools, one of the prospects for reform is giving them choice so they can leave the American schools and go to the German schools, which are probably way better. Um, no doubt are way better. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and you know that would be true throughout the whole system so that you'd allow people to opt out or to, uh, you know, to make their own education in pods or smaller groups, all with the idea that the money that would have gone to the schools will follow those students, just like we talk about here in uh, the States. And, uh, and so I think that's part of any real solution to this, um, but not with the idea that we're, think that that's the end goal. The end goal isn't just to be tolerated and to have some sort of carve out, but rather to offer an alternative vision of education that's much more similar to what we may have had in the 1850s or something that emphasizes literacy and competence in math, a reasonable patriotism, a preparation of young boys and young girls for destinies um, in, you know, different destinies from one another in the world. And, uh, and you know, it kind of leans into um, uh scientific progress as an element of this, but as I say, it's accompanied by a genuine appreciation for Western Civ and uh, for the reasonable patriotism in America. So I think uh, curricula that are built around those ideas are now beginning to be developed. It's very late in the game. Um, conservatives have, uh, have probably dropped the ball until maybe it's too late on this uh, front but like Hillsdale civics curriculum and other curriculum are now being uh, uh, you know, developed and offered and schools should definitely try to take that up and legislatures should try to impose such uh, curricula on uh, perhaps unwilling teachers. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that there's a two part strategy uh, that has to be adopted, which is to dishonor and disrupt the current education establishment and to seek to replace it. Mm. And uh, as, as I say, I think there are movements in this, but like homeschooling is not enough. And uh, there needs to be a like nationwide effort to craft an alternative that reflects a reasonable patriotism and appreciation for Western Civ and, uh, and prepares boys and girls for destinies in the modern world. Love it, love it. Those are those are great thoughts. Uh, well, 
Dr. Yenner, thank you so much. And a thank you to uh, Dr. Williams uh, for y'all's work in uh, putting this report together. I think it's, uh, it's helpful, it, it's clear, uh, and it's, uh, at least today has led to a great conversation. Uh, so um, before we go, where can people find and follow your work online? Oh, you know, various places. Uh, I post everything that I do on my Twitter account, uh, which is about the only thing I do put on Twitter. Don't I'm not what they say, uh, what the kids say. I'm not good on Twitter. I don't try, though. Uh, I just place my stuff there. Um, and otherwise, you can find it in various websites, Law, Liberty, um, The American Mind. Uh, but I also do a lot of kind of contract work for people on the study of uh uh, higher ed institutions and that stuff will only make its way onto my Twitters. So. Oh, excellent. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Yenner, thank you so much for uh, joining me today for this episode. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate you having me. Thank you listeners for joining us for this episode of the optimistic curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Scott Yenner, professor of political science at Boise state university and author of the recovery of family life, exposing the limits of modern ideology. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.